This podcast is brought to you by Yeshivat Tekoa under the auspices of the Steinsalt Center. The Steinsalt Center is responsible for all the activities of Rabbi Adin Ebeni Israel Steinsaltz. Its goal is to promote the Rabbi's mission of Let My People Know, making a world of Jewish knowledge accessible to all. The center's activities include publishing the Rabbi's writings and teachings, establishing educational programs and centers, and much more. For more information, please Google the Steinsalt Center or enter the link in the podcast description. The Thirteen-Petaled Rose, a discourse on the essence of Jewish existence and belief. Written by Rabbi Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz. Chapter 4. Holiness The root meaning of the concept of the holy in the holy language is separation. It implies the apartness and remoteness of something. The holy is that which is out of bounds, untouchable, and altogether beyond grasp. It cannot be understood or even defined, being so totally unlike anything else. To be holy is, in essence, to be distinctly other. There is much in the world that may be great, good, noble, or beautiful, without necessarily comprising any part of the essence of the holy. For the holy is beyond qualification. In fact, it cannot be described in any way other than by the very highest of all designations, that is, as holy. The designation itself is the repudiation of all other names and titles. Consequently, the only one who can be called holy is God, and the Holy One, blessed be He, the Highest and the Holy One, is unlike all else, being immeasurably remote, elevated, and transcendent. Nevertheless, we do speak of the dissemination of holiness over the world, over all the worlds, according to their levels, and even over this world of ours, in all its constituent parts, time, place, and soul. And in fact, we are even able to increase our receptivity to holiness by opening ourselves to its influence. The holiness of place is manifested in a series of concentric circles, at the center of which is the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. In itself, the Holy Temple is only a sort of spiritual implement built precisely according to the instructions of the Torah and the words of the prophets for the purpose of helping to anchor holiness in the material world. That is to say, to serve as a focal point of contact between the unreachable supreme holiness and the actuality of place. 
the overall design of the temple, in all its details from the outer courts to ritual objects and vessels, is a kind of projection of the higher world onto our world. Each part of the temple can, from a certain point of view, be seen as a homogeneous within a whole order of worlds beyond us. Or to put it another way, the temple in all its detail as a symbolic model of the chariot and the holy of holies is the place of the revelation of the divine glory, the point of contact or of intersection among the different worlds and between one level of existence and another. The holy of holies is therefore a point situated in our world and other worlds at the same time. As such, it is a place subject to the laws of all the worlds, and so outside the ordinary laws of time and place. That is why the Holy of Holies was barred to all men, except for the brief entry of the High Priest of Israel once a year on the Day of Atonement. As may be surmised, the holiness of this place is made manifest only when everything is as it should be, when the temple stands at its appointed location, and when everything in the temple is so perfectly ordered and arranged that it is pervaded by the Shekhinah. Since, however, the site chosen by prophetic revelation is that one place in space where such a divine connection can be made at all times, the holiness of the site persists even when the temple itself is no longer there so that even though this holiness may not be manifest now, the possibility of its manifestation is eternal. From the temple site, the circles of holiness extend ever farther into space, becoming fainter as they recede from the Holy of Holies to the temple court, from the temple court to the holy city of Jerusalem, from the holy city of Jerusalem to all of the holy land, and then, of course, beyond. Each of these bounded spaces implies a wide range of obligations and privileges. The holier place is, more strict is the general obligation. In addition to all the more specific obligations devolving upon those who live or, like priests, function in a sanctified area, to relate to it in a certain way. Though the potential for holiness persists forever, it is true that the holiness of the land of Israel cannot be adequately manifested unless all the constituents of the circle, radiating from the center in Jerusalem, are in their proper places. Thus, when the temple is not standing, all the aspects of holiness that grow out of it become vague and uncertain, some of them sinking into a state of only latent sanctity, indicating no more than a possibility and a starting point. The holiness of the Holy Land has nothing to do with who the inhabitants are or what they do. It is a choice from on high beyond human comprehensions. The sanctity of place is objective, a thing in its own right. But in order to be conscious of this sanctity, one has to be vouchsafed a certain experience. 
for it is seldom that holiness is made externally evident in the material world. The sites where it is recognized are often used for the deepest efforts to invoke the supreme source of plenty. Nor does the revelation of holiness at some particular place always have a totally positive effect. For in order to be properly receptive to holiness, one needs to have attained a high degree of purification. In the absence of consciousness and purification, the sense of holiness may be obscured or even scarcely grasped at all, and consequently its effect may be the very opposite of sanctification. Indeed, the powerful uplifting appeal of a holy place is frequently counterbalanced by feelings precisely of denial and rebellion against its holiness. Because wherever there is holiness, there are also those parasitic forces irresistibly attracted to holiness, seeking to live off it, at the same time to destroy it. Only when the entire apparatus of revelation is fixed and arranged to perfection can a holy sight reveal itself to every man without distinction, irrespective of people's subjective states of mind or of the presence of parasitic destructive forces. The holiness of a place would therefore imply that there had been some revelation of the supreme holiness at a point in physical space chosen to be a vehicle of the divine plenty. There are other kinds of sacred places, to be sure, places that have not attained holiness in this complete sense of the term, but have nevertheless come under the influence of some holy occurrence or personality. The tombs of saints and sages, for instance, or the places where they performed memorable deeds, may acquire great spiritual value. But such sites are not of the same order as, and are not to be confused with, that true connection between God and place, which has been revealed in the radiating sanctity of the holy temple. Holiness is manifested also in time, and there are consecrated days in the week, the months, and the year. The concept of time, in the Jewish way of thinking, is not one of a linear flow. Time is a process in which past, present, and future are bound to each other, not only by cause and effect, but also as a harmonization of two motions, progress forward and a counter-motion backward, encircling and returning. It is more like a spiral or a helix rising up from creation. There is always a certain return to the past, and the past is never a condition that has gone by and is no more, but rather one that continually returns and begins again at some significant point, whose significance changes constantly according to changing circumstances. There is thus a constant reversion to basic patterns of the past, although it is never possible to have a precise counterpart of any moments of time. The scope of this return to the past is diverse, 
the movement ranging through a number of circles, intersecting and interlocking with one another. The primary circuit is that of day and night. Thereafter, there are the week, the month, and the year, the half-century cycles of the Jubilee, and the great cycles of a thousand years and of seven thousand years. The round of the week is a kind of recapitulation of the seven days of creation. Each day of the week is not only an occasion to mark the particular work of creation of that day, but also a framework within which is manifested the special quality of existence corresponding to one of the Sefirot. For as it would appear, the seven days of the week and the particular thing created on each of these days, as told to us in Genesis, are emanations of the higher Sefirot into time. Thus, there are days of the week that belong to certain kinds of action or states of mind, and others fit for other modes of being. Tuesday, for example, being the manifestation of the Sephira of Tiveret, beauty or harmony, is considered a day given to success and good fortune, while Monday, the day of the Sephira of Gevura, and Wednesday are considered to have a sometimes hurtful severity. Also, the hours and portions of the day have their rhythmic patterns according to the subtle influences of Sefirot as reflected by the slanting rays of the sun. The morning hours are the well-favored ones. The afternoon is largely under the influence of the Sefira of Gvoa, growing ever more stern as evening approaches, while the time from midnight to dawn is the night for the manifestation of the finer and gentle qualities of Tiveret. The Sabbath is not just another day of the week, nor even a special day. It sums up the week and gives meaning to it. The weekdays are marked by acts of creation, ever repeated by the descent of the divine plenty into the world. And parallel to this descent, it is man's function during the week in the order of things to fix and to set the world right wherever it tends to go wrong. This includes correcting the world in the physical sense by work and action on the external frame and, in the spiritual sense, perfecting the world by performing mitzvot. The Sabbath is essentially the day of rest, of cessation from all labor and creative effort. For in the realm of the human soul, man's work on himself, his constant correcting of faults and spurring to activity of his inner being constitutes a ceaseless creative effort. And this holds true for the spiritual effort of working on oneself, as well as for the physical effort of working on the world. The week is characterized by busyness or activity, while the Sabbath is grounded on stillness, on the nullification of oneself in the downpour of holiness, and this self-repudiation is expressed by renunciation of all work, whether it be in the physical sense, as being busy in the world, or in the spiritual sense, as engaging in efforts to correct one's soul. In fact, 
the very power to receive the spiritual essence of the Sabbath comes from one's readiness and ability to surrender, to give up one's human and worldly state for the sake of the supreme holiness, through which all the worlds are raised to a higher level. The round of weekdays and Sabbath is without end. On one hand, the weekdays prepare the Sabbath, correcting and providing additional plenty to the world, making it possible to bring to a conclusion and to raise them to a suitably higher level. On the other hand, the Sabbath is the source of plenty for all the days of the week that follow it. The surrender of oneself on the Sabbath is not simply a matter of no activity, but of opening oneself to the influence of the higher worlds and thereby receiving the strength for all the days of the week that follow. Like the sanctity of a place, the sanctity of a day, of a certain unit of time, is intrinsic to it and cannot be transferred to another day. Nevertheless, the experience of this holiness, objective as it is, depends on one's spiritual readiness and openness. The more intensive and sincere the preparations during the week in the secular course of a person's life, the more holy is the Sabbath. The higher the spiritual level of a person in general, the more keenly is a sense of the general uplift, a raising of all the worlds felt on this day. Thus, although the round of the weekdays and the Sabbath is endlessly repeated, it is never the same. There are subtle variations in the flow of plenty, just as men themselves differ, and still every single week is an archetype, a recapitulation of the primordial pattern of Genesis. The cycles of the month and the year are somewhat different, bound as they are to natural events, like the motions of the sun and the moon, or to social events that have assumed a meaning beyond the historical. The Jewish month, for instance, is a lunar cycle, related solely to the phases of the moon. The waxing moon constitutes the beginning of the month, and the waxing moon its latter part. And most of the holidays come as the time of the full moon or near it. Simultaneously, the first of the month, at the time of the new moon, has a special position in the round of the year. The annual cycle of the sun, however, relies for its sanctity on the festivals and holy days when a revelatory event in the historic past and the divinely determined future are ritually bound to the present. It is in this way that holy days are connected to significant historic happenings, just as the exodus from Egypt on Passover, the receiving of the Torah on Mount Sinai on Shavuot, or the wanderings of the children of Israel in the wilderness on Sukkot. These holy festivals are not intended simply as memorial days to keep alive the memory of the events. They are divinely appointed times, dedicated to renewal of the same revelation that once occurred that day in the year, a repetition and a restoration of the same forces. So that the sanctity of the holiday 
is derived not only from a primal divine revelation, but also from Israel's continual re-sanctification in the way it keeps these days holy of this revelation. Besides the holidays that recapitulate some primal revelation in history, there are holy days that serve the need to sanctify time of the year itself. Thus, New Year's Day is, in a manner of speaking, man's first day in the created world. In the same way, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the day when the supreme holiness is revealed and man rises above all the worlds. This is made possible by the divine forgiveness and pardoning of sins, which overcome the downward pull of forces resulting from transgressions and shameful thoughts, and bring about an immense new purification of man's connection with God. Since the sanctity of a holiday is derived not from the historic event it commemorates, but from the revelation behind that event, some historic events do not deserve to be perpetuated as holy days at all. Historic event may therefore be commemorated as a memorial day only, either sad or joyous, as the case may be, but not part of the order of eternally sanctified days. Thus, the anniversaries of certain profoundly tragic events, like the destruction of the temple, are counted as days of mourning throughout the generations. Only when the world attains to a certain degree of redemption can these days be allowed to fade into oblivion. Until then, certain days of the year, like the first part of the month of Av, are considered days of mourning and misfortune, and in them calamities tend to appear or reappear, so multiplying the force of grievous memories. In addition to the festivals and the fasts that belong to the nation as a whole, other days mark significant events in the careers of outstanding personalities who have had some influence on either all of the people or part of it. And there are days commemorating events in the history of certain families or in individual lives. The anniversaries of the deaths of great men, and in Judaism only holy men are great, for instance, are considered occasions not for the most part for grief at the passing of a leader, but for gaiety at remembering the sanctity of the man and his ultimate spiritual victory in death. Also birthdays or other days of personal importance are frequently made part of the individual cycle of the year. The important fact is that the only true holy days are those deriving their sanctity from God. That is to say, when a certain date in the course of time, the divine abundance is revealed and returns to reveal itself each and every year. A third aspect of holiness is that of the human soul, the sanctity of man. And even this holiness does not derive from man himself. A person may be great, wise, and full of the most excellent of virtues. He may even be a tzaddik and a chosid, but the essence of holiness 
comes to him only insofar as he is connected to God, the source of the holy. A person may be connected with the source of holiness in several ways. There is a holiness that is inherited, that belongs to the family, given by God to those who serve him in certain ways. Here one may include the holiness of Israel as a whole, or that of the sons of Aaron, the hereditary priesthood. Then there is the more meaningful consecration that comes from the communion of man with God, such as may be attained, for example, through the mitzvot. Adhering completely to the holy precepts for conduct, refraining entirely from the wrongdoing envelops a man in a constant, ceaseless communion with God. Beyond this is the more intellectual union with the divine holiness through study and knowledge of the Torah. When man puts his very life and soul into studying the Torah and makes himself thoroughly familiar with the laws and the commandments, he becomes bound up in Torah, which is one of the manifestations of the supreme holiness. Higher still is a man's ability to surrender himself, to relinquish his own will and being to God's will. When a man reaches such a level of renunciation, he also attains a level of sanctification that reveals itself in different ways according to his spiritual capacities. Sometimes man surrenders himself to the divine holiness only within the realm of Torah and mitzvot. And striving further, he may reach a certain identification with something that is known only in terms of the higher wisdom in him. If he should attain to a union of such great force, he is able to respond to the divine influence and be vouchsafed a revelation of the Holy Spirit, and his whole life would change accordingly. This level has indeed been achieved by many great men throughout history through an adherence to mitzvot and Torah and by their whole way of life. And above this level are a select few who from time to time in human history are privileged to be so receptive to the divine plenty that they are given prophetic powers. And even with respect to prophetic powers, one may distinguish levels. There are prophets to whom prophecy comes as a transient vision. They feel as though a higher power compels them and produces in them images and ideas. On a higher level, in the Shekhinah, who speaks in the throat, when all his life the prophet is in some connection with the divine will, and he himself serves as an instrument of revelation. And at the highest level of holiness are those persons who have achieved a state in which their whole personalities and all of their actions are inseparably joined to the divine holiness. Of these persons, it is said, they have become a chariot, for the Shekhinah and like the chariot, they are totally yielded up to the one who sits on the driver's seats, the throne of glory, and they constitute a part of the throne of glory itself, even though they are flesh and blood, men like all other men. The life of a holy person becomes an example 
and a model for all men to follow. And a holy person may be a great king, or a saintly tzaddik, a sage, or a leader of his age. But he may also be one of the hidden saints, whose holiness goes unrecognized by men. But in whatever manner the holiness shows itself, and no matter how intrinsic it may be to the personality of the man, it is still dependent on his connection with the divine plenty. The ordinary man who has been granted contact with the holy person is thereby brought into a certain contact with true holiness. In this sense, the higher the level of a saintly person's holiness, the more he is like an angel, and in a way even more than an angel, acting as a vehicle of holiness by transmitting divine plenty from one world to another, and bestowing such plenty upon whom he ever chooses, through his blessings, his actions, and his prayers. The individual who makes inner contact with such a holy person, showing him love and devotion, thereby supports the flow of divine plenty in the world. This is what has been meant in Jewish tradition from time immemorial, when devotion has been shown to those persons who are superior in holiness or have an aura of sanctity. The gift is given such blessed men to create a bond of some sort that will draw them nearer, whether the holy person is connected to God by being a great scholar of the Torah, or whether he is just a saintly individual in his life. To honor, revere, and love the holy person is a mitzvah in itself, besides serving as a means for direct contact with holiness. And just as inner connection with the holiness of place or time consecrates and raises one, so does the holy person. Although, to be sure, the additional factor of conscious transfer of blessedness makes this contact the most heart-stirring and consequential of all human relationships. Thank you.